Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So a little announcement. Last week's guest was Jared Bias, and he is the co-host of The Bible for Normal People. And this week on The Bible for Normal People, I am the guest talking about the little research that I've done around end times and mental health, as well as the popularity of end times teaching with baby boomers um, coming out of the Jesus movement, all that stuff. We had a really fun conversation. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes for those of you who do not already listen to that show on a regular basis, which I imagine quite a few of you probably do. Um, Okay. So to today's conversation with Tony Jones, I initially intended to interview him about spirituality and the outdoors, but we got sidetracked talking about the failures and the future of the church. And it was just too interesting. So we'll have to have that other conversation about spirituality and the outdoors at a later date, but I just felt like I have to, I got to go where this thread is going. So Tony and I had some audio issues during the first part of our interview, uh, but they resolved after a bit. And I've decided to just summarize the important stuff from the first 15 minutes or so, and then drop you guys in once the audio is back to normal. I don't think you're going to have missed much especially since I started us out on a pretty unnecessary rabbit trail about the Israelites and the Canaanite genocide, which is interesting, but totally unrelated to the topic at hand. I'm still learning how to do this podcast thing. So 
My guest today, Tony Jones, he's been a public figure in the world of theology and ministry for about 20 years. He started out as a kind of superstar in the youth ministry world, or as he describes it, quote, a minor Christian celebrity, unquote. Uh, he spoke at conferences all over. He became involved in what is and was known as the emerging or emergent church movement. Uh, in Tony's words, the emergent church was an attempt to reform the Protestant church that lasted about 10 years in the early 2000s. This is like early Mark Driscoll, pre uh, pre all the craziness with the blow up of Marcel, early Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, early Peter Rollins, early Donald Miller, Doug Paget, Scott McKnight, in case any of those names sound familiar to you, especially if you're uh, my age or older, you might recognize some of that stuff. The official emerging church movement has basically ended, although there are still a handful of churches that meet, for instance, in bars or at bowling alleys that are essentially carrying that torch of the emergent church. Most of the focus these days has shifted away from the emerging church and toward the, this new phenomenon of deconstruction, reconstruction, stuff we talk about here a lot, as well as the nuns, the spiritual but not religious um, and in a way, this podcast is a part of the movement that has actually taken over the mantle from the emerging church folks, not really on purpose or anything. I, I didn't set out to be a part of the thing that would, you know, continue what the emerging church started, but here we have it. Tony told me that the emerging church basically dropped the ball and should have passed the baton to a younger generation. And that is where we will pick up our conversation. Well, one way of saying it is that the critique was right, but maybe, I mean, there either might not be a solution or right. no, nobody came up with the, with the new sort of option, right? That, the, that would actually well, fill the pews afresh. There might be three. I'm, I might even say there might be three strands of that rope that intertwine two of them. You just said, I mean, one is our solution maybe wasn't good enough. I don't know if it wasn't radical enough or was too radical or what. The second one is that there's just so much intransigence in those bureaucracies. They weren't desperate enough to change. Right. I remember uh, interviewing Stanley Hauerwas right at the height of Emergent. This is maybe like 05, 06 or something in there at one of our theological conversations. And his wife, I think, is a Methodist pastor and and he teaches at duke which is a methodist school and he was like talking about how methodism's gonna die and blah 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 blah. and somebody's like how long how long will it take he said well it takes a long time to burn through 19 billion dollars or whatever the number was which was like all the property the methodists own around the country like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property the enormous pension funds that they owned, all the seminaries and schools they own, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like his point was it's going to die, but there is so much infrastructure and so much wealth in that system. And so many people invested in the perpetuation of that system that you, you're, you, you might get some 25 year old Methodist pastor to be like, yeah, emergent. That's the future. Like burn the pews. And then he's going to go to his annual meeting with his bishop and his bishop is going to be like, sit down and shut up. Like, do, do you like your job? Yes, sir. Right. I like my job, <laughs> you know? And then I think the third strand, which I've only realized more recently 
is the denouement of of religion in the West is so closely tied to the rise of science as the authoritative framework in people's lives. I mean, take away those other two strands. I just don't know that religion can actually survive the advent of science as that dominant authoritative framework for people. Man, that's really interesting. We let's let's talk about this a little bit because this can be as wide ranging of a discussion as we want it to be, and we can always talk again. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not going to worry so much about my agenda here. Let's poke at that science thing. I think that's true, like on the coasts and with people who are college educated, especially who have advanced degrees, you know, postgraduate work. But I don't know that that's really. I, I'm wondering how true that is, like say with rural Americans or high school educated Americans, like how much of the trickle down is, is really, is really there with like science as the new sort of meta, the meta system to give us truth and authority. Well, as somebody who lives in the middle of the country and spends a lot of time in red counties, a big part of my life is hunting and fishing in the outdoors. And I do that mainly with real red state people. I hear what you're saying. A lot of them, they would confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus will heal grandma of cancer, but they will fight like hell to get grandma to the Mayo Clinic. And right. they, I just think fundamentally, people will pay lip service to the power of prayer or the miraculous in, in their daily lives. But when it comes down to it, I really think that... Charles Taylor is right. I, I really think that is the most powerful indictment of religion and explanation of belief systems in the West. Will you summarize his, his it, argument in that book, A Secular Age? Oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> well, when you say summarize the view, most. The, no, no, no. I just mean, give, give, yeah, me the, yeah. give us like the one paragraph of what you mean. Like his view is the most, has the most explanatory power. It's the, that. It, that the religious systems that we inherit that we inherit in the 21st century west were developed at a time when people had an enchanted view of the world so the world was inhabited by spiritual forces angels and demons like out of a, a left behind book or a frank peretti novel okay both right. of which you read ah uh, yeah of course <laughs> okay and that in fact, now what's more dominant in the West is secularism, and that is that those enchanted forces, some people still pay lip service to them, but fundamentally as a culture, we don't really believe that those forces are having an effect on our daily lives. Yeah. So this is – okay. So this is really good because this – really relates to my own research project and eventual which is, dissertation, which is my research question currently is what does it look like when eschatology or end times teaching causes spiritual trauma? So uh, I'm planning yeah. to do a qualitative study, deep interviews with people who have spiritual trauma from eschatology. And you only, I mean, it's going to be hard for you to find subjects because there's only a <laughs> hundred million people like uh -huh. that in the United States yeah. alone. I mean, I'll look for people who have, you know, have kind of stronger, you know, effects yeah. or whatever. But something that's interesting about that is 
when I think about the type of people, like be it pastors or sort of church leadership teams, that today especially. So, you know, in the 90s, it was still the zeitgeist. People could be forgiven for believing that all Christians agreed on the rapture or something like that. Right. Because right. in America, most of them did, at least all the all the low church people did. But now, like if I if someone tells me about a pastor today who's like really, really believing that the signs of whatever's going on in the Middle East are are in yeah. Daniel and Revelation, I'm thinking that that person is is kind of kooky. Like that they're, person, they're the outlier. They're the outlier, and they're actually like. So first of all, there's is that lip service or is it real? If you tell me, not only does this pastor preach about that, because there could be reasons to preach about it without changing one's life. Like there are incentives yeah. for keeping people in your church or keeping the the fire of faith alive because of the threat of rapture or hell or whatever. There can be like sort of psychological incentives. But if you tell me that pastor has actually started liquidating their holdings, you know, yeah, selling yeah, their right, house right. and they rent now because they are so confident in the esoteric claims of their interpretation of Daniel and Revelation, then yeah. that person is truly an outlier. They are the the point yeah. one percent or something. And this come has come up a few times recently in conversations on this show about how people maybe believe air quotes that all their neighbors and friends who aren't Christians are going to hell. But people don't really make decisions like no, they believe they don't that. act like it. So that, it's it's kind of yeah, related who, to all of that. Nobody took over Jack Van Impey's TV show when he died. You I don't know, know like, what that is. Oh, Jack Van Impey, dude, you gotta, you, there, he's got to at least make a footnote in your dissertation. I mean, okay, <laughs> Jack and Rexella Van Impey had a TV show that ran for years and years and years in which they interpreted the week's news right in light of Jesus' imminent return. Right. Yeah. But but here's the thing, you know, like. He probably came up in radio ministry in the 50s and 60s right. or whatever, and he got right. a TV show on TBN, and then they started like buying satellite time and broadcasting it over UHF channels and stuff like that. I mean, that's how those people got into, into people's homes. Then they became fodder for Saturday Night Live, you know what I'm saying? Or th these people now have been so debunked. He, here's a hometown example on a different issue, but I think it speaks to the same thing. The closest church to my house is a really big Presbyterian church. A couple years ago, they left the PCUSA and they joined the Evangelical Covenant Order, ECO, of Presbyterians, which a lot of the big conservative churches did. And they did it over gay marriage and gay ordination. Basically, nobody changes denominations today over anything but right. gay issues or women preaching issues. That's Those okay. are the only two issues, right? So I was at one of my kids' hockey games, and a lot of times the dads will go out and have a couple beers beforehand because you got to drop your kids at the rink, and then you got to kill an hour while they're getting dressed up. Because it takes a long time to get ready for the game. And then, yeah. I, and then somebody's at the rink will text you on the group me and okay. be like, the Zamboni's got three laps left. Okay, let's And have, everybody yeah. finishes their beer, and they jump in their cars and get back for the puck This drop. sounds like a fantastic ritual. I wish it's I was pretty a part awesome. of this. Yeah. And the parents in Minnesota call that the safety meeting. 
So <laughs> in the groupie, there'll be a text and somebody will call the, I call a safety meeting at, and they, yes. they'll say the bar. Oh, Cause a lot of times yeah. you're going to different towns for yeah, your right, hockey. Cause you're kids, traveling. Hockey right. Yeah. And they'll, somebody will find a bar and they'll send the link to the Google maps and like safety meeting. And then you t- incredible. Like, in that 50 minutes you're there, can you drink three beers? Like how I would, many beers? I would be more drink? like one and a half to two, I think, unless I was really going for it. Yeah. So my point is I'm a little juiced up already when I get to the hockey game. Right. And I'm sitting next to a mom whom I know, and she's very sweet. She's like the team manager or whatever. And, and so she knows I'm in the religion business. So we start talking about that during the game or whatever. And she tells me she goes to this church, Christ Presbyterian Church. And since I've had a couple of beers, I probably have a little bit of liquid courage. Uh, yeah. And I say to her, now that's funny. I would not take you to be an anti-gay kind of person. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she goes, I am an Enneagram 8, too, by the way. Okay, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram skeptic and a 7. Skeptic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. So. She's like, oh, no, I'm not. Why, why would you say I'm anti-gay? I said, well, I'm really surprised you go to an anti-gay church. I guess I'd, there, there are a lot of pro-gay churches in our town, I would think. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, CPC is not anti-gay. Because there's a way of, well, I don't mean to step on your story, oh, but there's a way these churches can frame their language in, as, in such yeah. a way that just the average person who doesn't have any, maybe even not even strong feelings on the subject Will exactly. not recognize it like, no, we can't marry them. Our pastors can't marry them. They can't serve. Right. That, you know, yada, yada, yada. Dan, this is why I'm saying, like, I think it goes to your same point of where we're at now, you know, about whatever the rapture or dispensationalism or, or whatever the case may be, is that, you know, as I pressed her more, I'm like, why do you think your church left the PCUSA and joined ECO? Oh, I don't know. I think it was because the PCUSA was too bureaucratic and, and they didn't have, a, you know, they wanted too much of our money. And I'm like, that's BS. That's not at all why. Like For your, sure. pastors, pastors don't leave denomination that you had to buy off the PCUSA. You, they had to pay one point three million dollars to buy their land, to buy that land. Yeah, right. From the PCUSA. OK, so they didn't do it because it was they didn't like the red tape. They right. did it over gays. They, they they did it for theological reasons. That's as you've already <laughs> said. That's why gays. people leave yeah. denominations, right? Yeah, right. over theological reasons. Yeah. And so and there's just I'm only like, a couple of those these days. So then yeah. she's kind of backpedaling. Well, the reason we go, I mean, our kids love the youth group and the yeah. preaching's really good and the band is good. My point is in all this is this. There are a lot of churches out there. You could go to their what we believe page on their website and they might be dispensationalists they might think jesus return is imminent they might believe in eternal conscious torment of the damned but if you go in and if you were to pull people in the pews who go to those churches they would not articulate any of those beliefs right right for sure They'd be like, I love Jesus. I like this church. This pastor's been really good to me when my sister right. was in the hospital. Yeah. I have community like I, here, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But so, so that's so interesting because that can go both ways. Sure. Right. So one of the really interesting findings back in late 2015, right before the election, I don't I, I, I say that because I don't know that anybody's followed up on it since that I have seen, but maybe okay. they have. 
So Barna or Lifeway, I think it was Lifeway Research, did some really good work around evangelicals and then clergy. So pew-sitting evangelicals and clergy. And so in that situation, clergy were far more likely to reject Trump than the people sitting in their pews. Yeah. But in this case, clergy are far more likely to claim eternal conscious torment than the people sitting in their pews. So it's almost like the it's interesting. There is a discrepancy, but it goes in both directions, so to speak, toward left and rightward. Right. So there's just something where like that's kind of what I was getting at when I was saying that the average person is just like they're just living their life. Right. They're not. Uh, those of us in the religion industry, which is really, or a religion business, which is yeah. funny, I guess I am, since I yep. have a Patreon, I'm in the religion business as well. <laughs> yep. Although not, uh, you know, in a ministry role technically, but yeah, like we get way more down and dirty with stuff and we get a lot more detailed and we have opinions on a lot more things. But so maybe you're convincing me actually of this Charles Taylor inflected point that what's really going on in the pews or in the comfortable padded chairs, as the case may be, is that people are people mostly are where their culture mostly is. Yeah. Unless you're at a real fundamentalist church where the set apartness is the identity, that would be the exception to this. Right. But most mega churches are going to find people who are kind of in the center of the bell curve of their geographical area, maybe within this racial profile, because of course it's, it's rare to find racially mixed churches. No, this is the, the genius of Rick Warren is he just stole a page right out of Ray Kroc. You know, Ray Kroc used to fly around Southern California in a rented helicopter. And wherever he saw built, you know, houses being built, he'd say, put a McDonald's there, put a McDonald's there. That's all Rick Warren did. That's all Bill Hybels did. I mean, not to say they weren't very dynamic leaders and communicators. Absolutely, they were. But they planted their churches in places that were growing. I mean, Robert Schuler did it years before that. The Crystal Cathedral was built in Orange County when Orange County was Orange Groves. And now it's like home to tens of millions of people. Right, right. So one of my dearest friends has a gay son. His college son is gay. He's an usher at his anti-gay church. And I ask him about it all the time. And he's just like, I know, I know I shouldn't go there. But I mean, my wife and I, we just were in this small group and I'm an usher once a month. And I don't know. It's just. Well, also. He just is like, it's just so much work to leave and find another church. You think like these people are going to leave churches. They're not going to go to another church. They're just going to stop going to church. Mm. Well, that's so that's a big thing. Now, I wonder what the data is on that. I, I know the data for therapy, which is different, but maybe okay. not fully different. The reason that the big motivator to basically do nothing in the beginning that will turn your potential client off from working with you is that the recidivism rate is is high, right? Like they're they're unlikely to try someone else. Something oh. like 40, 50%. I don't have the number sure. in front of me. But it's like uh, one really bad experience with a shitty therapist yeah. can turn someone off to any therapy for years. Absolutely. Uh, and like a lot of people, not just a handful of people, right? So yeah. that there's maybe something psychologically related in terms of like, would I really find a new one or will I just stop this particular habit that I have? But then I was thinking, 
there's also a positive angle to the story of your friend, for instance, which is how will that church, and I'm curious if you have a different view on this. I tend to think that how will that church change? It is by enough people in that church changing their mind. And so anybody who's friends with your friend who has the gay son, if that topic ever comes up, they're going to find out that he is affirming. And yeah. then maybe they'll start thinking about being affirming. And and it's sort of like, do you change from within or do you change by leaving and voting with your feet and your dollars to you know a competitor or whatever, especially given the fact that you might just not go anywhere. So then you're not actually you know voting with your dollar and your feet if you just don't go to a new any church at all. I don't know where where do, what are your thoughts on sort of those different ways of changing the church? Uh I that's such a great question and I don't know if I have a great answer. I mean, I have some anecdotal stuff like uh, the church at which I grew up is currently undergoing a major attempt to change and reframe themselves, change the name because they think the name is Colonial Church and they think the name is offensive because it's tied to colonialism. colonialism of course yeah. of course when the name was when my grandparents started the church with a, a couple other dozen couples it's a congregationalist church they were trying to tie it to the Plymouth colony, the New Haven colony, these like abolitionist colonies that were seeking religious freedom. Wow. Yeah. Totally different legacy is what they were, you know, uh, what they were about, but words change. And so they're struggling with that. Or, or the criticism could be leveled that it's lipstick on a pig. You know, it's like, we've got this wealthy church in a white suburb of Minnesota that's trying to like make a statement, but, is it is that really changing the DNA of the church? Is it really doing anything at a deeper level? On the other hand, you're exactly right about the influence that people have on a one-to-one basis because what happened here in the in Minnesota when I don't know what it was, 12 years ago or something, the ELCA had their big meeting here in Minnesota, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and they were taking their big vote on gay ordination, gay marriage. Right. And here's what the pro-affirming groups did. They bought breakfast, lunch, and dinner tickets, and they gave them out to gay people, just people who live in the Twin Cities, and said, we want you to go go sit at tables with all these delegates, bishops, pastors, and lay persons who are delegates. Wow. Just go have have a meal with these people, because the votes at the end of the week, so they're eating three meals a day in this at the Minneapolis Convention Center, and anybody can buy tickets and go in. So, gay people, I have friends who just went in and had lunch and said, "What what questions can we answer? What do you want to know about the gay lifestyle?" You know, th- those kind right. of terms were being bandied about back then. Do you want to know what it's like to be a homosexual or whatever? The kind of stuff we hear now, even a dozen years later, and we it's cringeworthy. But at the time. It was just like, let's break down beer. And, and, you know, the vote, nobody knew which way that vote was going to go at the beginning of the week. And by the end of the week, it was overwhelmingly in favor of affirming gay people in, in every aspect of the Lutheran church. And a few, you know, of course, a few dozen churches left the denomination over that. But the, the ELCA was affected by those one-on-one conversations. So interesting to your point 
that maybe it doesn't matter if it comes from the top down. In that denomination, it didn't. I do wonder, the evangelical churches right now that are big are so hierarchical and so authoritarian. You know, for years, one of my talking points in the emerging church was that people, and I'd, I'd be interested in your take on this as a, as a psychologist. In training. <laughs> okay. One year in, uh, yeah, one year okay. into doctoral so you, program. But still, yeah. you have in, intuition. I like and, that lens. I, I, I think through that yeah. lens so I, I can give you my take. Yeah. It seems to me that people are very quick to abdicate their hermeneutical authority. So yeah. you'll be in a group setting, let's say a church congregation, and people are like, the Bible is a confusing book. It's old. I don't, I read it. I don't understand it. And then somebody stands up and clips a microphone on and has a spotlight shining on him. And he says, I studied the Bible. Let me tell you what it means. Now, Quakers don't do this. And supposedly congregationalists don't do this, but we're very quick to abdicate that hermeneutical authority. And I don't think it's that different from people who say, I don't like the way Trump talks, but I just heard somebody say this on the news this morning. Somebody in Kenosha was saying, we need someone to come in here who's an authoritative leader. That was the phrase he used. And I'm like, you look at Trump and see an authoritative leader. That boggles my mind. But some people do. It's authoritarian leader. Yeah, yeah, right. So I just think as much as we would like to think that my friend with a gay son could move the needle at his, he goes to the biggest church in Minnesota, and it's big Baptist, very conservative, anti-gay church, doesn't let women preach, that kind of thing. I don't think he can move the needle there. Well, I mean, there, that might be a mathematical question. And if he were yeah. at a similar church with 150 congregants, perhaps we would True. have a different opinion. So, but then if it's the biggest church in Minnesota, there are also many more people like your friend with gay kids. At it, the it, place, yeah. So maybe yeah. in his small group or among the group of right. ushers or something like that. Yeah, and possibly. I don't I don't know what the calculus ought to be. You know, I mean, yeah, if it's Baptist and then then this is like five issues away, right? I mean, like... They, yeah. They're going to need to work on inerrancy first and, the, you know, whatever. There, there will be yeah. things that would come up sooner in that theological change. So I have a couple thoughts on what you said. You know, I was thinking about becoming Catholic about four or five years ago. I know. Um, I heard that on your podcast and I just thought, no, I'm so glad you didn't. That would have been a huge mistake. Uh, I don't think it would have been a huge mistake. <laughs> I, if I If it had happened, literally, I was this close. Easter... Whatever year it was, I don't know, 2016, yeah. 2015, whatever. That Easter Sunday, I had been hanging out with a Jesuit, and he was like, look, there's a way you can become confirmed without having to go through RCIA, which is like the year-long class. Yeah. You can have a priest directly just confirm you. And he was going to do it, but one of his duties as a Jesuit priest was to serve communion to a group of nuns on Easter Sunday that were out on the east side like an hour or two away, and he did not have time. I would have probably become a Catholic that day if he had had time. Now, that being said, he was always like, you don't need to necessarily, and probably you shouldn't because your wife feels kind of weird about it. And he was right about that, and I, I, I shouldn't yeah. have. And But if I had, it'd be fine. I'd just be a liberal Catholic. I think it would be no big deal. And I still prefer Mass. Catholic Mass. is still my favorite kind of church to go to. So anyways, when I was considering that, I noticed in myself, and, and Tony, I am like 
in the 98th percentile of people who want to have their own opinions about thorny theological questions and hermeneutical questions, maybe the 99th percentile, right? Okay. I love that. And I even in myself thought, oh, how fucking nice this will be to just defer to the church. Right. (laughs) So if I thought that, and I I am not that kind of person, like that's the one thought. And then where I would relate it to specifically psychological concepts it's funny, the word hermeneutic and the word heuristic aren't that far off from each other. Right. That's even right. though I have no idea if they share any sort of, you know, etymology. But heuristics are these sort of quick and dirty shortcuts, I'm sure you know this, but in case people don't, that our brain uses, our mind uses to save energy. They are very good in the grand scheme of things. They they allow us to sort of live these complex human lives without having to like go back to the drawing board every time We're trying to figure out if this person over here is someone we know or not, or Uh how we ought to think about the player on this team or, you know, how common things are to how likely they are to occur to us. There are some distortions. These heuristics, they they end up being not strictly speaking accurate. And so, for instance, when we see a lot of news coverage about terrorism, we are likely to think that we will be impacted by a terrorist event even though the percentage of that is almost zero. Or we think, there, man, there is, for instance, these days, there is chaos on the streets of America because in two or three municipalities, there are a few square blocks of chaos, right? Right. But we see it on the news all night long, and so we think it's more likely to happen in our town or there's more of it. So there's something about passing off one's hermeneutic to a leader, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're like a dentist or you are – a construction worker, you, you are a Mason and like not a Freemason. <laughs> you do masonry. And right. like, well, how much time do you have to figure out your hermeneutic of scripture? Like what, you know, maybe you like, no, that's to right. Podcasts, you don't. Yeah. 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 But yeah. You, you gotta I just know. get on with life. Correct. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And so I, maybe it's one of the failings of the emerging church is that we try to always be, putting that back in people's laps. We're not going to interpret the text for you. We're going to, we're in this together. Maybe I know Greek, but you bring something to the text that I don't bring to it. That just is maybe unsustainable. Maybe that's why the Quaker friends meeting in your town and in my town is really small. It's tiny. There's like, there was 12 people at the one I went to in Seattle. Yeah. And Seattle and is a metropolitan area of 3.8 yeah. million people. Right. right? So I, I do think there's really something to that. This is this is a really such an interesting conversation that I'm, I'm always kind of thinking about. Like, so you did you were a big part of the emergent church. Now we might call it like the post evangelical or the deconstruction or yeah. whatever. No one seems to have quite a term yet for this mass of of people. 20 to 45, right? Who, yeah. who listen to Rob Bell or read Pete Enns' books or read your books or whatever. What, what works? Like, why don't they just go to mainline churches that agree with all of their theology and politics? They don't do that. We don't do that. Now, my wife and I, probably we are the exception. We will end up at a mainline church, probably an Episcopal church, but most people don't do that. And First of all, let's just start there. What do you think explains the fact that like when people find out 
oh, this Methodist church or this Episcopal church, they, I agree with them. They agree with you. But why don't they go? Have you or been to those go, churches? Yes, I know. I know. I have been. They're terrible. So when they go, so what do you they're mean run, when you say they're, they're terrible? They're just, te- they're just, they're terribly boring. They haven't changed anything in years. Like, here's a thought experiment for you, okay? Let's just say we built an internet machine that randomly searched the internet and brought up, let's just say it, total random, like pulling uh, the, the arm on a, on a slot machine. And it brought up for you 10 evangelical church websites and 10 mainline church websites. Okay, you're smiling. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you suspect we would see? What, what do I expect we'd find on the site? On, on the, the difference between the 10 oh, sites. Yeah. The, yeah, 10 the, the evangelical, evangelical websites, websites would have mainline websites. Good photos of people of every age packed in. You know, they'll have like easily listenable audio sermons. They will have good photos of the space. There will be a little page. What to expect when you arrive? Now, if I dig deeper, there will be the first time. theology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. But, but, but sure, be, yeah. you'd be able to find everything you yeah. want. Yeah. You could find a bio of the pastor and the email to the pastor and tell me everything about the youth ministry. And it would be good graphics, inviting. Yeah, right. And if you go to the mainline with, I mean, there'd be exceptions on both sides, but that's why I say you bring up 10 and eight of the 10 evangelical websites are going to be well done. They spent some money on it. They updated it. And eight of the 10 mainline websites would have like some flash pop up that is broken. Yeah. It would say at the bottom of the page, like copyright 2012. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So you just can go down the list of I love mainline theology and that's my home. I grew up in the mainline. I did not grow up evangelical. Like I I was the rare person in emergent leadership who wasn't fleeing evangelical. I was saying, come with me to the side where we have good theology. Another thought experiment that I used to do when I was giving emergency type talks is I would show these, I would show pictures of like, I would say, okay, my kids went to the same elementary school as, as I did. So I would show a picture of an, like a second grade classroom in 1975 and then show a picture of my kid's second grade classroom in 2005. All right. And dramatically different you know, I, the classroom for, for my elementary school was like individual desks all pointed forward toward the blackboard. The teacher stood up in front. She talked, you know, she had the thing that you put the five pieces of chalk and dragged it across the board to make the lines and teach us cursive. Yeah, right, Remember yeah. those? Yeah. Okay. So we're all like looking forward. We're at individuated desks, etc. My kids 30 years later, center-based learning. There's no front of the classroom. The teacher moves around. The kids are at pods where they're looking at one another. The room looks kind of messy, but you know, they, there's a corner for reading over here, and then they all did math over here, and there are some computers over here and tablets over there and that, this kind of thing. The, the reason those classrooms changed is because we understand learning styles and learning and what yeah. helps a second grader learn. Research has moved the curriculum, basically. You might even say science. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I mean. Right? I mean, yeah, science, right. Our principal at that elementary school would constantly be talking about pediatric 
neurological research. And he'd say, studies show that kids learn better in warm, nurturing environments. In fact, more neural connections are developed in the prefrontal cortex and when children are in warm, nurturing environments. So we're going to have these kids call their teachers by the first names, not Mr. and Mrs. Like Hmm. we're all trying to develop their brains. Meanwhile, now like record scratch, okay? You can insert that. Josh can insert that for me. (laughs) Josh, put a record scratch in. You might wonder how we got here. I'll tell you where to put the record scratch in. Now I want you to imagine your church sanctuary in 1975 and your church sanctuary in 2020. It's the exact same. Right. Like we know people are different. Everything's the way they organize the shopping mall has changed. The way they organize college campuses has changed. The way people are remodeling their homes and tearing out all the small rooms and building a great room with an island in the middle, you know, so you can, the whole family can filter around at holidays and be in the same room. People don't have dining rooms anymore. They have, you know what I'm saying? We're changing constantly the way we structure our lives based on who we are as people and what we're learning about ourselves. This is such a long answer to your question. Sorry. That's good. The, the mainline churches haven't changed. You walk into a Presbyterian church, it's the exact same as it was 30 years ago. There's pews, they face forward, they're bolted into the, the floor. The pastor comes out wearing a black Geneva gown with a colored stole, stands up in the pulpit, gives a 24-minute sermon. You know, it, there's been no evolution. And so you then you look at millennials or Gen Z, like my kids are Gen Z, right? Two in college, one in high school. The world has changed so dramatically. Now COVID's changing it again. And the Trump presidency is changing it again. So their reality is change. And then we're saying to them, we want you to matriculate into an organization that really doesn't value change. So that's a super long answer to your question. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a break and use the restroom. Yeah. And you me have too. given me five <laughs> follow-up questions just from Bro, that we haven't gotten to anything that you actually wanted to talk it's about. It's just going to be a different episode. It's fine. This is a good one. We'll just do it later. Okay. So, okay. All right. We'll just I'm take a short pee. break. Did you know that patrons of this show have access to a patron-only Facebook group, as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month. The most recent one was a conversation with my friend John, is basically a case study in spiritual and physical abuse, uh, which has led to him leaving the Christian faith. But also, there's an interesting wrinkle in that his father, the abuser, became a pastor and has reconciled with John. So in my mind, it is also a case study of the power of religion to both destroy deep parts of ourselves and also bring us back to life, basically. Uh, So if that sounds interesting to you, you should check that out on the patron feed, especially if you're already a patron. And if not, you can become one. It's five bucks a month unless you really can't afford that, in which case there is a sliding scale. And please email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. But to become a patron, 
go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. That link is also in the show notes. And okay, let's get back to my conversation with Tony. All right, I've got, as I said, I have five follow-ups to the, the long okay. answer you gave me, which, I, which was fantastic. So the first one is that as we think about what church might look like going forward, like, like I'm interested in the question, can someone come up with or some group of people come up with a model that does work for people like myself who have gone through deconstruction like most listeners of this show yeah. and who – you know, they might still go to a traditional church, whether that's evangelical style or liturgical high church style. I know we have plenty of Catholic and Episcopal listeners as well. But like, you know, a lot of people find those really quite unsatisfactory. They go because their kids like it or they go, you know, whatever. Or they yeah. go because they don't know of anything better or they don't go at all uh, because they haven't, they haven't found something. So I'm really interested in like what might a model be that works for a well, large why, well, number dan why do you go to church that's a good question do you um, think god do you think god does stuff do you think god does stuff in this space-time continuum yeah i do you you think god does what do you think god changes people's minds do you think god you're asking me for my he, theology of divine yeah, yeah. agency yeah, who do, do you think? Because it all goes back to the enchanted worldview, okay? Yeah. So if, if you go to an evangelical church right now, even though you live your daily life, you're you're reliant upon your your MacBook Air and your iPhone and your car to you know start when you push a button instead of turn a key, and, and that you can go run to the Mayo Clinic if you get colon cancer, like. Still, if you go to an evangelical church for an hour a week, you're being said like, hey, there is an enchanted world. You get enchantment, yeah. Right? There's a God who does shit. There's like a God who breaks into the space-time continuum and cures people of cancer and gets you a good spot at the shopping mall when you're trying to park and you're late or helped you to avoid that car wreck. Oh, my God. You, okay. Whatever the case I, I may see be. Saying. So that's why a lot of people go to church. That's but why that, a lot of people go to church. And, and that's what the mainline church does not offer. The mainline church yeah. no longer offers an enchanted worldview where you can go there and they will tell you God is doing shit. Right, that, because they, they would it, feel dishonest giving right. that kind of world. Now, they're going to say, you need that, to do shit. Well, I believe you that need God to go do shit. does stuff, but I like don't believe in that kind of in that stuff. I don't believe that God breaks the laws of physics. That's usually my definition of miracle okay. that, you know, I don't think that God does that. I'm, I'm like a processy open and relational theist guy. Okay. So I think that, you know, for instance, atonement theories, I like the ones that reveal who God already was, not the ones that say something ontological happens in the universe, right? right. At the moment of, of resurrection or whatever. But I think that I go to church like sort of why other people hike, like why you yeah. do outdoors stuff, why you go hunting and fishing. Like enchantment is a good word for it, but it's not magical, maybe. So yeah, I don't know if there's yeah. like a sub magical enchantment, but like, you know, I have experienced God's presence in taking the Eucharist. 
I find the group reciting of prayers for the people, uh, prayers for the poor and the suffering. And I find that to be aligning when I'm in a, a church service. I find standing up and giving special credence to the words of Christ to be anchoring, right? So in in that sense, I'm, I'm connecting okay. myself to deeper reality or deeper truth than I usually am connected to in my workaday life. You could say something like that, which I think is why people love hiking as well. Like, it's like, oh, there's yeah, something that, I, bigger here. It's transcendent. Yeah. Transcendent is the word I tend to use, not That's enchanted. the word I use now, too. But I'm just okay. telling you, there are very few people like you. That's what I mean, I'm there's a lot of hikers. I live in the Northwest. No, there are very few people like you who find that in church. Find that in church. That's what I'm saying. There are yeah. very few people left. If you take away the magic, the church does not have a lot to offer that is not offered by myriad other aspects of human life in Western society. Yeah. Interesting. So that's a, yeah, that's a really good angle. Like, cause I mean, I what mean, would you, what would you say to somebody if, if you were, remember back in the day, I mean, this is the other thing that the mainline church wouldn't do, but remember back in the day when, when we were growing up and we were told about friendship evangelism and like, oh, yeah. you need to invite your friends and neighbors to church. No, you don't hear that anymore. Right. Yeah. Okay. But let's just say hypothetically that there's a mainline pastor out there who said, you know what? If you love the, if you love our church so much, invite your friends and neighbors to our church. What? So you're sitting in your backyard drinking a crafty Seattle brew with your neighbors, and everybody's got beards and lumberjack shirts on, like you, and skinny jeans. And what are you going to say to them? You're going to say, "You guys, I know you love hiking, and I know you love, you know, drinking your pour over coffee on Sunday morning. But trust me." If you really want some transcendence, come with me to First United Methodist Presbyterian <laughs> Episcopal Church, where you're really going to get some enchantment and transcendence, but without the magic. So there's something, you know, that's really I don't want to be a cynical asshole, no. but I'm I'm asking you, like, legit. No, it's good. What I mean, you, I'm, what, I'm not the best test case because, like, people self-select their friendship with me based uh-huh. on who I am, just as I do with all my friends. And so sure. my friends are like, hey, what church are you guys going to? I mean, like that's because that's, you know, that's what I'm that's into. And so that's it's my, yeah. yeah, it's my circle. But Catholics do this better, I think. And like, it makes me think of Joseph Campbell and his his sort of bemoaning of the loss of um, coming of age rituals and the and the mystery of the of the Latin Mass, which he was really into, sure. And so there there is a sense in which maybe the Catholics do this better, where it's like even if you're like a semi committed Catholic, there's something you get in Mass that you don't get hiking. True. It is it's there are smells, there are beautiful sounds. I mean, when I like I prefer to go to the cathedral downtown Seattle. And it's just this insanely beautiful space. You know, I went one week. It was the week that they did uh, children's confirmation. So they took their first communion. And so they had a children's choir singing these songs in this big stone cathedral. And it was just gorgeous. Now, I don't get that. Well, I don't get anything hiking. I'm not I'm like a fat 
indoors person. But I don't get that from watching a great film. Maybe I get it from a really beautiful film or something. But that was like, that was really beautiful. That's pretty yeah, much Dan, missing Catholic, from the whole Protestant thing is like we're distrustful. I agree, but the Catholic Church also offers magic. They, they still offer do. magic in that they say if you don't if you take the Eucharist from a Catholic priest, we do some magic on it and it yeah. changes it. Yeah. To, uh, or your marriage doesn't count unless a Catholic priest did the wedding or if you want to go to heaven when you die, you need a Catholic priest by your bed to administer divine unction to you. Or yeah, there's some magic, yeah. There's they still have magic in it. And I'm not saying I mean you talk to a lot of Catholics and you're like, do you actually think you're eating Jesus? Like a the Catholic priest is going to say, oh, it's Jesus DNA. I mean it's hidden from us, but that wafer turns into Jesus DNA and you ask some of them will say that. Yeah. Not parishioners. Yeah. And the, okay. But a higher percentage than the parishioners, most of whom will roll their eyes and be like, no bro. And why do they no longer believe that? Because of science. Right. Because uh, I I should say the scientific worldview, Worldview. the disenchantment in the West. So I even think that's diminishing over time, but I just think they, they still offer some magic. Yeah. And I, I know there are a lot. I see it all the time. It's like I see all these, you know, elite people from a very elite culture converting to Catholicism or even Eastern Orthodoxy for the very reasons you're talking about, I think. That brings up the, the science question again. And so I had this follow up. You were talking about your, your kids' elementary school, right? And how the principal was just talking about the science and the studies and stuff. Have you thought about this? Is there a way to base church community or whatever the future of church would look like on research, scientific research, the way that children's education is built on it or the way that the, you know, American Pediatrics Association based their recommendations on that? You know, like, is there a way to do that the way that marketing companies use the latest psychological yeah. research, right? Like, so all these really competitive areas of our life, they are forced to look into the research. So they have an edge over their competitors and churches just don't seem to need to do that. But, or maybe that, that's the problem as you're saying. So how have you thought about how <laughs> yeah. that could happen? I mean, there's got to, it's a great question. There's got to be a way, there must be a way to design the way we worship and gather as Christian communities based on research of like what helps people to spiritually mature. I I remember when I was on a church staff, the senior pastor went to Washington for a week and spent a week with George Gallup and, you know, who was like the granddaddy of Gallup polling. And they liked the grand, he was a, he was a, a practicing Episcopalian and did a lot of research into church life in America. And I was on that church staff from 97 to 03. So somewhere in that window. And he came back. I'll never forget uh, sitting in the church staff meeting. And he was kind of saying, well, here's, you know, let me tell you what I did last week when I was with George Gallup, there were like, I don't know, invitation only 10 pastors of big churches from around the country. And he said, I could tell you everything he told us, but I'm just going to boil it down to this. Your church will grow 
if everyone in the congregation is asked two times per year, how are you doing with Jesus? He's like, that's it. That's the secret magic sauce. So he was just saying to us, like, as pastors on this staff, if you're just sitting down with people twice a year, like have lunch, have coffee with somebody, how's your relationship with Jesus? That's all, that's all people need to keep them engaged in the life of the congregation. And yet, how often is that happening? Well, it's, that that's happening interesting. That seems like, of course, good social science or whatever. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't, I don't speak for the community of listeners of this show, but I, I'm a part of this community of a lot of people who those type of tactics were employed by their evangelical sure. pastors and it feels transactional to them. Yeah. And so I, I'm wondering, there's probably, if you do, if you go across the numbers, that probably does work. Um, but the listeners of this show, I think are maybe in the 30% of that sure. who are like less likely to come if you do that, because they that feel be. like you're actually just trying to goose your numbers and like, you're not in my life every day. And of course it depends person to person, pastor to pastor, but that can feel car salesman -y. And, and I, I, you know, Barna group and like other groups do release this kind of research for in Lifeway research, right? F aimed at pastors at building healthy churches, growing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's a way that people can, or pastors can kind of use that stuff, but you kind of see through it if you're looking for it. So what do the listeners of this show want in a Christian community or do, or do they just want a podcast? Do they want a podcast that they can listen to on the treadmill and nobody knows that they're, they're not wearing it a cross necklace. They're not getting a cross tattooed on their calf. Their, their Christianity is done privately. Or they're thinking of how they could want? re re uh, do over the cross and make it into a different tattoo. Cause they already got it when they were on a mission trip in, in their, when they were 20, <laughs> right. the fish, the fish tattoo, right? How can this could be repurposed into a bigger piece? Um, that is a great question. Obviously everybody has to answer that for themselves. Yeah. There's a sense in which, yeah, a podcast delivered right to your phone, one of 1,000 possible podcasts on a similar topic such that you can find the personality you like the most. Right. So people self-select to me instead of other people and other people self-select to other podcast hosts, right? So there is a sense in which I am producing a far more consumable product for you than your local yeah. church is likely to do because that's limited by the distance from your house and all of that stuff. And so that's an interesting question. Are progressive Christian podcasts sort of like making people less Supplanting likely the church? Yeah, yeah. And making them less likely to enjoy church because, well, it's so much worse than the podcast. I've heard people tell me that they will listen to mine or other podcasts in their earbuds during sermons at their local church. Like, what? I'll just throw on a podcast during the sermon. <laughs> it's better than what this guy has to say. No. And then I'll be there for the worship and the everything else. Yeah. yeah. Well, li look, I remember th this is just the li liberal side of wh what my pastor told me one time. He said, just remember, it's really hard. This is, you know, pre-podcast. This is the, around year 2000. It's really hard to keep people's attention for half an hour a week when they're listening to Chuck Swindoll on Christian radio, give sermons five hours a week. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, because so, he's people who get to that level are like oh, master communicators. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. So and that's so another we that's pale a, in comparison to that. Yeah. So that is one of the things that I end up thinking about when I'm trying to think about what it could look like is like you. It doesn't probably make sense for the local pastor to compete with the best of the best. The Andy Crouch podcast, the Greg Boyd podcast, the Tim Keller sermon podcast. These are all just a click away. Like right. so. And these are more conservative guys. The, these Reverend, are the, types of the people. Reverend Hunter, the Reverend Hunter podcast. Is no, that's yours. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. The Reverend Hunter podcast. These are just a click <laughs> thank away. You, thank you. Or if they yeah, don't want yeah, a sermon yeah. a show like this, that's a conversation is a click away. Right. That right. feels more authentic to them than the posturing of a of homiletics, right? Or whatever. So that's really interesting too. And so I I think that like whatever it need whatever it is, this new model, it needs to not contain competing with the best communicators in the world at communicating. Like it has to do something different than yeah. that. But that leads to a related problem. So then where my mind goes is great, just go live among the poor. They don't okay. care if you're a master communicator. They have pressing needs. And then yeah. I think, oh, that's who the church is for. The church is actually not really for me, a perfectly financially secure, home-owning, white middle-class man who will soon have a doctoral degree in a well-paying field. I don't need anything from my pastor or my church right. community, not in the way the people living on Aurora Avenue in Seattle need the church or their pastor for things. And so if that's true, what does that say about like Christianity in general? Like is Christianity just not primarily for me, the well-to-do? Is it to form me to help the less well-to-do? You know, like where does all that stuff lay, land? Well, and even what countries around the globe, you know, excluding communist countries like North Korea or something, have the lowest participation in organized religion? The Scandinavian countries, the wealthiest countries, yeah. Well, in Scandin, in the Scandin, in the Christian socialist countries, where the government now provides all those services that for two millennia the church the church has provided, people don't go to church. And I remember going on a speaking tour there when I was a C list Christian celebrity, and you know they were there were people over there trying to get the emerging church movement going because they're like. The church is dead in Denmark. Nobody goes to church in Denmark. And and I went there. I remember thinking like, it's because the government takes care of all your needs. What does the church have to offer you? If it doesn't offer magic and you don't even need magic anymore because you're pretty well set, you know, all your uh, needs are taken care of. What does, what, why would you go to church to have some kind of connection with the divine as the only thing that the church would have left to offer you <laughs> but like okay imagine a future where you know people don't have to work very much you know this yeah. the, this people futurists think about this like with universal Andrew, basic Andrew income Yang and, thought about this yeah yeah right and and the idea that like eventually and it might take a while and i think that climate change is a, is a big wrench in this project because climate change is going to cost just trillions and trillions of dollars yeah, true so, but let's say a hundred years from now, or 150 years from now, if the climate is not completely destroyed, people just don't have to work very much. We're so yeah. efficient at creating wealth. Robots are doing our work. Yeah. 
at that point, isn't the only thing we want church for is transcendent interaction with the divine? I don't know. Like, is it better? This is actually, if you think about it, a very deep theological question. Is it better for a person to have their needs, quote, met by God or by God's community than to have them met by the state or met in the natural course of things in a very wealthy earth where people just have enough food and they have clothing and shelter? You know, like, is it better to be like dependent upon God or is that like kind of an abusive, you know, not abusive, like in the sense of like God purposefully abusing us, but like, I don't know, kind of a weird power dynamic and like all things equal, not preferable. I mean, it's funny. For one thing, I think that's actually a great premise for a science fiction novel Mm. is, you know, like a hundred years in the future and people don't really have to work. They're bored shitless. And suddenly there's like a major revival of religious sentiment. Yeah. Just because people don't have anything else to do. And, uh, you know, a group of preachers rises up and people start, you know, there's another Toronto blessing or something that sweeps. Well, or like, I mean, you could you could even use the kind of the George Floyd moment as a as a bit of a, a framework for that. Not not yeah. that, uh, of course, there were elements of the Floyd tape, especially that felt just so egregious, even compared to yeah. the Michael Brown and all the yeah. other stuff. But like also COVID was going on and people were not at work and they had more time right. on their hands and right. they hadn't been outside for a while. And so yeah. that probably did, you know, increase at least feet, boots on the ground involvement in those protests. Right. And increase people's social media interaction because they have less going on. And so that that's interesting. I guess we're getting a little a feel. No, here. but I would also say, like, let's point out the contradiction of so many progressive Christians who point at those Scandinavian countries and say, that's what our government should be like. Our government should be like Sweden and Denmark and Norway and take care of everybody. We should pay way higher income tax and have a much more robust safety net for everybody. Whereas they also at the same time decry Constantine and like the Constantinian marriage of church and state. But if you go to Scandinavia, you realize one, those social welfare states grew out of Christianity. Those are not yeah. like, those are very homogenous cultures. Yeah, they're all Christians. Yeah. All white Lutherans. Basically. And, yeah. and developed those social welfare states out of theological conviction. And that is, that's Constantinianism. Like that's the, that's asking the state to do the work of the church. And what's funny and a little bit ironic is you often hear conservative evangelicals saying government needs to be smaller. Church needs to be doing this work, taking care of unwed mothers, taking care of like breaking down systemic racism and helping people find jobs there's really no evidence that the church would do that in the 21st well, that's the, century that's the problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but both these sides just, yeah. Well, they, the one thing that I, we should say, I think about the Europe thing is there was also this little matter of world wars one and two, which were fought on European soil. Sure. And which were up and down uh, officially sanctioned by all the state churches. Right. And we just didn't have that here. And so it's it's hard to draw a causal line between the 
increasing of a social welfare state and the decline of Christianity. It might be that, you know, the Catholic and all the state Protestant churches basically doing nothing about the Holocaust and even being complicit in the Holocaust in some cases has a much bigger existentialism doesn't really get going until after World War II. Right. So uh, how, you know, how much is it's all connected, but it's it's impossible to sort of uh, you can't do a controlled randomized experiment. No, that's true. About that's it, right? true. You can't. So. That's true. You can't. I mean, and then yeah, that was definitely bad for the for marketing of the church in Europe. So another <laughs> their thing complicity that, with a pogrom. Yes, yeah, yes, that was a bad, was a bad, bad move. move. <laughs> so one other question before I, I before I ask just a, a couple more rapid fire like ones to end here. This is a bit of a meteor topic. So. There's something interesting about church and and sort of the the splitting of the spiritual and religious life along sort of conservative and progressive or liberal dynamics. So there's really interesting research around this. In fact, I just saw um, an article recently that they these researchers actually showed that if you can inculcate spiritual experiences, that actually makes people more sociopolitically liberal. And that if you have a more religious uh, orientation towards God, you're more sociopolitically conservative. And with denominations and buildings and Sunday morning services, there's a part of this to me that seems like fundamentally conservative, like in its essence, it is traditional. The best case is we will go to the same church that our parents went to and our kids will go to it. Like that's sort of the ideal. I wish these churches yeah. never had to have problems so we could just stay. And if that's true, then is it maybe like what worked? Why did it work in the seventies that you had this Jesus movement, which was liberal and spiritual and this massive revival among baby boomers that then gets codified into a church movement that can then be conservative and stay big for decades and is now beginning to erode. But that's like the exception, right? Normally the youth movements like the emergent movement or whatever, don't end up with this massive success in all this, you know, whatever, you know what I'm saying? So I'm rambling here a bit. I'm tying maybe multiple things together. I just like with, you know, post-World War II Europe, I don't think that Jesus movement is that simply defined i mean in some ways it was so conservative it theolo- you're right theologically fundamentally theologically so conservative with chuck smith but and- aesthetically it was very liberal and youth oriented yeah but that isn't that just window dressing i mean it's the same as no like saying- i don't think so i just interviewed really? four boomers about end times and the jesus movement and the three of them that became Christians in the Jesus movement, one of them was already was raised Baptist. The other three said they loved the fact that it was contemporary music. They yeah. didn't have to dress up like Lawrence Welk in a suit and tie. Right. All of them mentioned the aesthetics as quite central to their conversion experience and their excitement of getting into that world. Yeah, I'm not saying that those aren't central. I, I think absolutely, you know, core to Rick Warren's success is that he wore Hawaiian shirts and khaki pants and didn't put on a robe. And it was so dramatically different from what all those boomers had grown up with, with very strict, you know, you like, let's just think that in the generation you go from the dad 
the Scottish Presbyterian dad in a river runs through it to so down good. the right to like a generation later that there's Rick Warren in, in a Hawaiian shirt. Like, I don't mean to diminish it when I say that it's window dressing, yeah. but I, I, I want to say it was like an old West town with a buildings, with a false front, with a facade, you know, like the big two story general store. And then you walk inside and it's a little, it's one little room. And theologically it was all one little room, even though the churches were built with a huge, welcoming facade and a a massive parking lot with parking attendants and special parking for pregnant moms, first time visitors, you know, that you go down the list, but then you get in there. It's a very constrictive theology. So there's something about that. That's a, that was appealing to people. And I almost think it's in spite of that constrictive theology that people got swept up in the aesthetics and didn't pay enough attention to the theology. Yeah, and, and one little bit there is that the more constrict, constrictive and conservative theology is, the more motivated you are to evangelize. And so there's a little bit of a mathematical sort of a exponential growth curve built No question. In, right? So whereas mainliners are just not worried that their neighbors are going to hell, right? even – even though evangelicals don't, most people don't really act like it. It might be enough motivation to invite them to church a few times, you know, at least. Right. And then yeah, that just becomes well, exponential. A youth pastor told me uh, from a conservative church who was in this kind of vein of like, they built their sanctuary with stadium seating and yeah. you know, that kind of thing. He said, Tony, my job is to depopulate hell and populate heaven. And any, I will do anything I can to make that happen, which means exactly that's the nice and, parking spots. That's the whatever. And this is what drove us mad in the emergent movement is we would be like, do you guys not see the, like, do you not, do you think Marsha McLuhan was wrong? The medium is the message. It changes. It fundamentally changes the gospel when you wear a Hawaiian shirt and you have smoke machines and, play Dave Crowder songs than when you're singing hymns and wearing a Geneva gown and following the Presbyterian liturgy. Like the medium changes the message. And those we over and over and over again, we were told by those evangelical baby boomer leaders, no, the methods change. The message never changes. But they have a really atomized understanding of the gospel. Sure. That is like, filtered through all these layers of interpretation and ahistorical and you know so they're right, they're right. just wrong about that but you can see how they come to that view yeah and then they use that as a rationale for doing anything it takes to get butts in seats right yeah in college i called it the the only real dollar is a soul saved that's the yeah. only dollar in the bank nothing right. else is actually currency right uh right. And that's why in Campus Crusade, we would do these fake surveys. Well, slow ne- motion or, or slow motion football. <laughs> Did you ever do slow motion no, football on the beach? No, we didn't do slow beach? motion football, no. I don't think so. I got kicked, I got kicked out of Campus Crusade because I wouldn't do the fake survey. I wouldn't go into dorms. I just heard someone say, so they, they stopped doing out. it at our program in, in, in California in 04 or something. But I heard someone who goes to crew now or, or recently did that there. Their crew was still doing it. 
Wow. It's like a top-down thing. It's deceptive and insane, gross. Anyway, yeah. I have two more things I want to ask you about briefly. Um, okay. This has been so fun, though, Tony. So, oh yeah, you, I agree. you mentioned COVID and you mentioned Trump, and you in the context of your kids. And I want to ask you briefly about each of those. So, okay. a lot of people are, of course, wondering what's the future of church after COVID. I'm wondering, first of all, if you have any, have you been talking with you know sort of church leaders about this? Like, what are they worried about? What are they excited about? But then also just like, what is your take? Like, how do you think that because COVID, this lockdown, this extended lockdown will change American culture. Um, It already is. Uh, And it's unclear what stuff will just kind of bounce back and what will be forever changed. Right. right. What what are your thoughts about church after COVID, after becoming much more reliant on, you know, uh, digital connectivity, far less church attendance? Uh, weird about being in public places with people probably for a couple years, right? uh, right. you know, just kind of disgust having a hard time to go away. I don't know any of that. I think that a lot of people won't go back to church. I, I, I think that the decline in church attendance was already dropping in America pretty quickly. I think it will be a precipitous drop off. And I talk to pastors and I get mixed. I mean, some of them are like, we have more people watching our Facebook live than, than we ever had in, in the service. And I'm like, do you know how long somebody has to be watching your Facebook video or your YouTube video for it to count as a view? And they're like, no, I'm like, they're not, they don't have to watch the whole hour for, for Google to click it as a YouTube yeah, view. But they could look and see who, how many people are watching live that they would can be see how many people yeah. are watching live, but that's a much lower bar. It's got to be a lower number too. To it's turn, also a lower to, bar. Yeah, exactly. It's a lower bar for a tent to, 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 I asked my mom, you know, did you, are, have you been watching the services live? She said, oh, I've been having them on in the background while I work on my jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Which yeah. is a pretty low bar. Like that's a low she's kind of half tuned in. Now she says she's 77 and she is right in that, you know, on the one hand, she can't wait to go back and see her friends. On the other hand, she's like, I'm 77. Are you crazy? I'm not going to go stand in the narthex with 150 people sharing germs. Like, there's no way. Yeah, she would. She probably will only go back when there's like widespread vaccinations or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And will my kids ever go to church? I mean, I don't. I don't see that happening. Did they short, go with you? Short but- of short of some kind of cataclysmic event in our culture. Hmm. It, I, I do really think if there were some court, sort of cataclysmic event where the infrastructures upon which we all rely on a daily basis, the electrical grid, the internet, supplies of petroleum, like if, if we really had some kind of apocalyptic event, I could see maybe my kids being like, I'll go to the church. It's it, I need the community. The church is handing out food, you know, mm. and and a gallon of gas a week. I'm going to yeah. go. Th- that those are I guess those are my people. Yeah, interesting. What about Trump? So what's interesting here is we did get three years of church attendance dropping from Trump before COVID. Yeah, uh, but in the historical record, those will now be interlinked, and it will be impossible to fully separate them out as causes for reduced attendance, right? But is Trump in a sense similar or a simpler, sorry, than COVID in that 
there are churches that can say we were never into Trump, you know, like come worship with us. We didn't. Yeah. But, you know, and then other churches, they're going to have to basically account for that to the younger generation or they'll just die off or they'll and of die course, off. that will take a long time. Because, it's funny, Dan. How It's yeah. funny how many uh, I don't have a home church that I preach at. I only guest preach. And when I guest preach, it's often at little churches out in the places where I hunt in the Dakotas. So these will be mainline churches like Episcopal, Lutheran, UCC. And I'm told at every one of them, like, I don't talk about politics because we have some Trumpers here and we just can't, we just avoid it. So the churches, even the mainline churches are, are forsaking their prophetic calling out of fear of losing members. It's just happening everywhere. Now, of course, if you're going to go into downtown Seattle and you go to the big UCC church, whatever that is, they're going to preach against Trump. But but that's that's preaching to the choir. That it's a mutual admiration society there. There's nothing prophetic about it because any Trumper left long ago. But in actual real churches, like in the middle of America, it's just it's it's avoided out of fear. So, so what do you think the future? So what's the fallout from that? In, yeah, you're in right. Your I think you're right on the money that the fallout is, you know, my kids who are 20, 19 and 16, if they were to possibly be interested in going to church when they're 30, that's the thing they might go to the Internet Wayback machine and see what that church said during the Trump era, you know. Or if that church opened during COVID and people died as a result, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I would think they will do some due diligence on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Tony, plug your plug your podcast, which we didn't really talk about, but we will <laughs> next time we talk. Because I, I have a whole set of questions for you about Christian spirituality and the outdoors. Yeah. We're just going to have to do it separately. Yeah, sorry we didn't get to that. It's uh, great. I, this, was, this is a fun, uh, fun change of plans. Well, since I, you know, my life changed a lot, I kind of rebranded as the Reverend Hunter. So because I hunt and preach in these little towns a lot. So people can just find me at reverendhunter.com. My, my podcast is called The Reverend Hunter. I've done a bunch of outdoors writing that kind of connects spirituality with the outdoors. So you can find that all on my website too. And I have another I bet you have a bunch of culturally savvy listeners too. I have another podcast called Killer Serials where another guy with a PhD in theology and I break down TV shows and like talk about theological, spiritual themes in TV. Have you done The Good Place yet? We haven't. We are going episode by episode through Rectify right now, which is an incredible show. Uh, it's on Netflix. It was originally on the Sundance channel, but it's huh. super intense and deep and it made a lot of these lists, these COVID lists, like yeah. TV critics would say, oh, if you've, you've watched The Sopranos, you've watched The Wire, you've watched Breaking Bad, here are five shows you've never heard of, but are at that level. And yeah. Rectify was on every one of those lists. So I'm we did that. Start watching it. It's a great show. And we've, we've interviewed like several of the writers, the actors we've had on the podcast and stuff like that. Because oh, cool. every everyone's on COVID. So they're just stuck at home. Everybody's available. Yeah. You get like, you can get Martin Scorsese if you want these days. Yeah. And everybody has got a mic now. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's going to make podcasting with like big stars much easier. I think uh, we've already done it. Everybody we've reached out to. I just like DM people on Twitter stars. Yeah. And they'll be like, yeah, we'll come on. Yeah. I'll come on your 
podcast. No problem. <laughs> I tend they got to not, nothing going on. I, I tend to not really go after big names on this show. And I, I think there are kind of two reasons for it. One is that is ego. I don't like to talk to people that I don't feel like I can kind of sort of punch my own weight, you know, like, sure. Uh, sure. so that's a totally, uh, that's not a good motivation. That's a bad motivation, but I recognize it. And then the other, which I think is a little better is like, I just want to talk about the stuff that I'm interested in and yeah. people are always promoting books and they're saying the same things. And, you know, I, I don't like it when I hear someone oh, I hear give you. the same interview twice, you know, um, uh, for the Reverend yeah. Hunter, my, my, the podcast network I'm a part of for that one, they would love me to do more like can you get more people who have huge right. social media followings course, in the outdoors yeah. world whatever and you know like i did have one gold medal uh gold medal olympian on and she was super super sweet but it was a tough interview because i was just she was on, on a virtual book tour and i was just another hour in right. her schedule you know she yep. didn't never heard of me before she hadn't yeah so. there's something there's something about building it up a bit more organically and and it's true, like the more famous someone is, the more they have to protect and the more careful yeah. they are in media appearances. And that is their right. I would do it if yeah. I were them, but it makes for a bad interview, yeah. you know, all things equal. And so anyway, uh, thank you for being a C-list Christian celebrity <laughs> so that we can yeah, have I, a really good conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You still haven't really uh, broken that threshold of having someone famous nope. on. No. Nope. Nope. Well, thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I've got a link to Tony's site, The Reverend Hunter, in the show notes. You can also uh, look him up. He's written a bunch of books. A lot of them are the kind of thing that are right up the alley of so many of my listeners I know. Uh, For instance, why did God kill Jesus is the title of one of them. So check that out. And there's also a link to my Bible for normal people episode uh, that aired today as well on their feed. And I think that's it. Thanks to Josh Gilbert, my incredible editor. Uh, you can hire him for more work. He is listed in the show notes. His email is there. I think that's it. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>